Welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. I'm your host, France Tapon. In this episode, we talk about poaching versus anti-poaching. We talk about South Africa's Greater Balepi Nature Reserve. Two of them are from South Africa, one of them is from Texas, and they're all united in an effort to conserve Africa's wildlife. African Wildlife Services is a company that they work underneath effectively, and they're doing their best to service the animals and the community at the same time. And it's an interesting balance, what they have to fight. There's, There's issues of how much hunting should we do? How much photographic safari should we do? Where's our emphasis? And you can see their struggle in how to make sure that the homo sapiens who live in that land actually benefit too, as well as protecting the animals that live on that land. It's a tricky issue, it's not easy, and it may not be what you might have thought is the best solution. Tell me what you think. Please become a patron so that you can get rewarded for supporting this show. The rewards are really cool, especially the $25 reward. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, we have three guests today, and luckily they each have their own unique accent, so you'll be able to tell them apart. <laughs> so let's start off with uh, the hardest name for me to pronounce, Prince Benjamin Dipati Merenneja. I'm from South Africa in a province called Mpopo, uh, in the community called Balepia in the Mopani district. My name is Louis Eberson. I'm also from South Africa. I operate as a hunting outfitter and a counter poaching service provider as well as an ecological advisory uh, consultant to the wildlife industry. And we work with Prince Mayanecha and his community project called the Greater Balepi Nature Reserve, as well as with our next guest, I think. <laughs> My name is T. Wayne Schwartner. I'm an associate professor of wildlife science at Tarleton State University in Texas. And you can probably tell by my accent, I am not from South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I love about this conversation because we all have our unique accents. And so, therefore, uh, d- listeners will be able to follow along. Okay, so let's start off with you, uh, Prince Mayaneta. Tell us a little bit about the project that you're collaborating with. All, you know, you've got a Texan here, you've got a fellow South African with you. And tell us about the project that you're working for your community. Uh, these projects try to establish uh, the population of the leopards uh, in collaboration with the university. So our uh, expectation is to see how the numbers look like in that particular space. We have different species there, but this one will give us an idea, especially when we mobilize and lobby sites in terms of looking at quotas and uh, every other species like the mobilization of the rhino horn. So for me, it is a very, very good project because it, it is scientific-based. It deals with the, the science of the wildlife. And for that matter, we as a, as a community, we are excited about it. Give some background to the listeners regarding the area. Originally, it was kind of taken away, and how did you get it back, etc.? We, we can't say beneficiary of the land because we, we were staying there. And uh, at the time of apartheid in South Africa, we were removed and taken to separate areas as a community scattered all over the country. With the land reform project a program uh, from government, government what it does, it buys land back from uh, the owners, especially you claim the land. And uh, there is a, what we call the willing buyer, willing seller. If the farmer wants to sell this land, 
to a community which was removed, they government buy this land back to us. So uh, now they bought around 22,000 with the estimated 70,000, which need to be bought, uh, which we believe in our lifetime it can be bought uh, uh, if the resources for government are there. But uh, in terms of this project, we, when the, these other uh, the farmers left the area, we revitalized the area and started the project of conservation because it was used for that. Instead of putting people there and uh, being able to be eaten by the Emma, we restored the area to become one of the uh, big projects in the area and challenge the status quo. Tell us a little bit about, Louis, the three organizations that are involved in this, the, the three ways you separated, the aerial, wildlife services, etc. Thank you, uh, Francis. Yes, and what we've tried to do is to create a vessel or a business model that would uh, present a favorable narrative and an image of the hunting industry. And we looked for a specific project like the, the Balepi project, which was uh, restituted land so that we can uh, address the, that issue where we, whereby we are claiming land back in favor of biodiversity from other uh, practices like mining or uh, agricultural uh, um, commercial farming practices. So the business model entails providing a holistic one-stop solution to the wildlife industry. And it consists of three companies in our stable. Aerial Wildlife Services, which consults and advises on ecological management practices and land use. Then we have uh, a counter-poaching uh, company called African uh, Wildlife Security, which specializes in counter-poaching operations. We have uh, canine units and helicopters in support of that um, business model or business. Um, and then we have African Wilderness Safaris, which caters to ecotourism, both consumptive as well as non-consumptive. So it creates a, a one-stop solution to a landowner like Prince Benjamin and his community that we can advise, assist, and facilitate uh, the project development and also the business that they are trying to do with their community. So there's real and tangible benefits to the community through poverty alleviation, job creation, education, and training in cooperation with Talton State University, with our friend uh, T. Wayne Swartner, doctor, sorry, doctor. Uh, you know, and we're very excited to look into and develop exchange student programs because we're trying to train the custodians or stewards, if you will, or the managers, the next generation of conservationists, biodiversity managers. And that is very exciting. What I'm not totally clear on is the first one. You've got... African Wilderness Safaris is one company, which is that's classic safaris, whether it's um, consumptive or not consumptive. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the security; that's the anti-poaching unit. They're mm -hmm. they're securing the wildlife. What did I say? Poaching. You said anti-poaching. It's a common mistake. Most oh. people talk about anti-poaching without knowing the difference between counter-poaching and anti-poaching. Educate us. Right. There are uh, the. <laughs> Counter poaching is 
counter-insurgency operations from the military textbook. Okay, so there are two sets of rules in uh, the world. Uh, when it comes to uh, designated um, war zones, you have a handbook under the Geneva Convention that has the rules of engagement. All right, and then in civil society, you have uh, the use uh, or another handbook which uh, encompasses the rules for the use of force. So there are different sets of rules. And when it comes to poaching or illegal wildlife trafficking, you are dealing with a insurgency type or like industry and insurgent. The poacher is an insurgent or equivalent to, you can be compared to an insurgent, a guerrilla type of warfare. And for that, to the counters that exist for that, countermeasures is called counter-insurgency operations. So because we are in a civil uh, environment, we don't use the military terms. So they don't talk about counter-poaching, but they talk about anti-poaching. But the anti-poaching is not a legalized, structured business because... Private security must be registered and must be regulated. We can't have a bunch of uh, vigilantes or, or um, mercenaries coming into our country, dictating to us or, you know, prosecuting people, suddenly making arrests, chasing people, investigating people. Under what license? Under what permit? So it has to be registered and controlled. And that's the difference between anti-poaching operations and counter-poaching operations. There's a legitimate operation which is registered and controlled by sovereign countries' laws and legislation. And then there's anti-poaching operations which is basically just... Militia. We it's like a militia? It's vigilantes. Militia. It is not formalized mm -hmm. because it's not regulated. But Africa, contrary to what a lot of people may think, is actually... Uh, a lot of sovereign states which need to be respected mm -hmm. so don't think you can come there with your special forces from mm -hmm. with respect to my colleagues in the industry and come and pursue people or investigate people or arrest people mm -hmm. you're, a, you're a tourist mm -hmm. understood so Speaking of tourists, <laughs> let's go to tour. <laughs> let's all you, no, 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 I no, but uh, to the doctor, Dr. Yeah. Wayne, um, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this and why should people in Texas care about what's going on in South Africa? So I and my team, we provide the academic support, uh, the research support to the project. And um, we got involved um, a year or two ago through some mutual network acquaintances, um, and, and, and found out about this project. We were very intrigued and excited about the project for two reasons. Uh, first off, uh, it's the opportunity to do important research for leopard conservation. And, uh, and that's our primary motivation in everything we do is how can we inform conservation so that not only our generation but generations to come will have robust wildlife populations wherever that may be, whether that's in the United States or in, in Africa with the case of leopards. So we were very excited about that opportunity. Mm -hmm. We were also very excited about this novel approach with the restitution of the land uh, to the Blepi people and the, um, and the conversion over to this nature reserve. So it was really getting in on the ground floor of, of a novel conservation approach. Um, South Africa has a tremendous, tremendous uh, 
Institute's track record of wildlife research and wildlife conservation. And, and I don't, you know, I, I, I bring a small part, uh, a tiny little part to that. But I hope that I can contribute to, to wildlife conservation in South Africa and, in, and leopard conservation in South Africa. Now, you ask, why should Americans care? And I, and I think that anybody who cares about the environment should care about healthy, robust wildlife populations and biodiversity. And again, whether that's in Southern Africa, whether that's in the Arctic, whether that's in your own backyard, um, the, the health of the planet um, is, is intimately tied with biodiversity. And so that's what drives me, my team, my department, my university. It's also the, the scientific data that they collect assist us to inform our government in South Africa in terms of population density to determine those quotas for international trade. The scientific research serves to inform CITES, international trade regulating organizations and bodies, uh, IUCN. CITES, people may not know what CITES is all about, so you might explain that. Um, CITES is the Council for International Trade in Endangered Species. I think they were formed, speaking under correction, in the late middle 70s. Uh, Prince Benjamin, can you remember? Yeah, I think it's uh, 69. Yeah, I'm yeah. speaking under correction, yes, but... That is uh, most of countries in the world that are from the uh, uh, Geneva signatories, United Nations uh, supporters, are signatories to international trade agreements, bilateral agreements. So they uh, formed this body to uh, promote and regulate trade. Mm -hmm. However, at the last COP, uh, the Conference of Parties uh, in Geneva, uh, where they were supposed to use scientific uh, data to inform uh, trade regulations, that got chucked out. It's like out the door. So uh, there was rulings impacting on rural communities in Africa taken at the COP meeting that affects people's livelihoods and their basic human rights to a livelihood and an income which is ridiculous. So we rely heavily on the science from Dalton State University and Dr. Swartner's team to inform U.S. Fish and Wildlife that informs international trade regulations and policies. Also to f uh, publish, hopefully, non-detrimental finding in terms of specific species like the leopard, like you mentioned before, or the lion, or whichever species is applicable, yeah, elephant. It could also be helpful to have an objective third party kind of looking at this because if you say that there's 100 leopards in the wild and in fact there's only 50, then you give a quota that is comp too high and that will help decimate the population. So mm -hmm. it's so important to know exactly how many leopards are, at least approximately, a very mm -hmm. good estimate because you could guess the wrong way and that could have severe consequences. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing, isn't it, Doctor? Absolutely, and that's, and that's, that's so important. Uh, Clearly, any time you're talking about governments and regulations and intergovernmental things, it's messy. It's political, and, and we understand that. But fundamentally, the process is driven by science or should be driven by science. And although that's, that's sometimes imperfect and sometimes the, the science is not followed as well as it should, the science must be available before it can be followed. Okay. And the, the gaps, the gaps must be filled. And, and so, um, so the, the society's process relies upon a good understanding of of how many animals are there, uh, what their ecology is, uh, and that's the underpinning both at the international level and then at the national level. And so South Africa has a nationwide uh, program of 
of leopard uh, population estimation, leopard monitoring, and uh, and we're we're working with the authorities in the South African government uh, to make sure that our protocols are the same as theirs, and so that they may use our data. And so this is not trying to usurp anybody to try to get anybody's way. This is contributing uh, willful collaborators with the South Africans uh, themselves, uh, again, to, to put the best science possible forward for conservation. Now, any leader of a community such as you are faces dissent, people who disagree with the policy or the common policy. or the con- How much resistance does your local population have to some of the measures that you are trying to lead regarding leopard conservation and just general animal conservation? Are there people saying, no, why don't we farm that land? The, the issue of, uh, the, in fact, it falls under the challenges of the community as a whole. Uh, we only have challenges, which is the triple, the triple uh, 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 demon, which is inequality, unemployment, and, uh, and poverty. So, so you will find community members who will say, uh, we don't need conservation, we, we rather have uh, money, we rather have uh, jobs, we rather have all this. Then uh, the issue is a consensus issue. When we hold meetings, we have around 510 plus uh, members in that particular uh, 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 communal property association. What they do, they meet uh, every year and give the leaders a mandate. It's a democratic kind of uh, setup where they will say, this one we don't know, you need to go further and uh, do a research on it. And uh, we take the mandate from the community uh, rather than uh, using uh, autocratic in an African way. We say, if I'm a leader, I'm from the royal family. I So there is a democratic uh, processes. Uh, I think if now in March we're going back to meet with the community to, uh, get to regain the new mandate. You will always have resistance from the community. There's no way in which you can have a community where you... 100% get a buy-in of all members, but uh, usually the majority rule. If uh, 60% of the members says co- continue with your project and the project, then uh, as a leader, we have to implement it. Yeah. Uh, doctor, how is this different than how the United States deals with the Native American tribes and gives them certain rights, such as, let's say, gambling and casinos in certain areas, and then the tribes take that money and then distribute it amongst the Native Americans. Is it a similar approach? You're just using animal conservation instead of casinos, or is there some other differences that, or maybe you're not familiar? I don't know. Uh, well, I'm certainly not an expert on tribal law, and, uh, and, and being from Texas, we have very little uh, very few Indian reservations, so I, I can't speak as an expert there. I do know that under the American system, um, the tribes have a certain degree of autonomy when it comes to managing their wildlife resources, and and the, and and my understanding is the exact degree of autonomy is a little bit different as you go from tribe to tribe because the treaties under which the reservations were established are slightly different. So one tribe may have rights to its wildlife that another one does not. Uh, so it's it's I know it's very complicated. Uh, that's that's the one thing I do know about it. Um, you know I, I think that that clearly we're in a different place in North America in our history than Southern Africa is, and so um, 
you know, there's there's some good things and some bad things about that. Uh, we, you know, Africa can look at some of the mistakes that we have made over time and say, I'm, I'm glad you made those mistakes. We don't have to. Uh, at the same time, they may be able to look at American history or European history and say, oh, there's some positive things that we want to apply. So, again, I wouldn't tell, I wouldn't not presume to tell any level of government in South Africa how to do their business. My uh, my. My job is simply to offer up the best science I can uh, so that then when they make the decisions, just mm-hmm. as, as Prince mm-hmm. Benjamin said, with his community, they have the best information available for that. Hunters bring in a lot more revenue per hunter than a photographic tourist brings in. Can you give us an idea of what those numbers are, the difference, approximately? Yeah, if I remember the most recent the figures that I've seen and, and read is that one hunter brings in as much as 20 non-consumptive or photographic tourists. So you've got to compare that carbon footprint, for instance. Also, you've got to consider the infrastructure required to accommodate photograph a busload of photographic tourists. I mean, where for a hunting group you need two or four beds to accommodate a, a hunter, you would require 40, 60 beds what about the water supply? Africa doesn't have water. It's an arid region. South Africa. Well, southern Africa, for that matter. I mean, it is uh, the arable land there is something less than 5%. And again, I'm speaking under correction there. But we do not have the, in, uh, the necessary nat- natural resources, like the water, for instance, to accommodate 60-plus uh, tourists. That Especially are tourists who take long showers. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and... Not only that, you've got to build those extra rooms. You've got to uh, accommodate the extra electricity consumption. You've got to accommodate all the extra food and the waste that those 60 people uh, generate. What happens to the waste management here? So let's compare and offset the carbon footprint of the non-hunter and the photographic hunter with the consumptive hunter, the trophy hunter. So it's it's a no-brainer. The trophy hunter and the hunter, not necessarily a trophy hunter only, hunters in general, generates more profit per hectare than your uh, non-consumptive utilization form of ecotourism. So that is what we need to consider because in the world we live in, we're talking about global, uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, warming, global warming, right? Um, And the carbon footprint of international, multinational corporates and industries or governments for that matter. We have something that is called uh, uh, carbon trading these days. So by investing in the green economy or a pro-biodiversity industry like the GBNR or the project GBNR Reserve represents, that creates an opportunity, a potential opportunity for carbon trading, which involves, what is it, uh, Fortune 500, uh, Fortune 100 or companies maybe which is a lot of money. So we need to consider that aspect, and we need to compare that carbon footprint and the best possible use of the land. And the science that Dr. Swartner and his team provides us with advises on the best land use management policy and strategy, and that needs to be utilized to inform international regulating bodies, like U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So, and also the community, so that they can make informed decisions on what is the best use of their land and what will benefit their, their, their community members directly. How do we alleviate the poverty? 
what is the best use of that land? Prince, let me ask you a question about your people and how they view, let's say, photographic safaris, non-consumptive tourists versus hunters. Do, do, Do you get a sense that they value one more than the other, that they might look at hunters and say, wow, they bring in so much money, mm-hmm. and so that's great for our community. Or do they look at hunters and say, oh, my God, they're taking away our wildlife or, you know, they're, 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 they're harvesting some of our, our valuable resources. And, and we like the photographic guys because they just come take pictures and then they don't actually take anything except for the water and the long showers. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, so and, the what, and the waste and all that stuff. But, yeah. uh, but they may not even think about that because that's, a, you know, something that may not be entirely obvious at first. Uh, so um, what, what, how does your community, I know it's hard because everybody has different opinions, but yeah. h- how, what do, how do they look at hunters versus non-photographic uh, people? Do they care? Maybe they don't even care. <laughs> you know, they, yeah, they do care because uh, I think one of the things which made us to have that reserve, it was a resolution from the community. Uh, the land was not being used after being transferred. So we, we went to the community say, as leaders, you know, we are elected by these communities. They, w- there is a setup called the Valepe Communal Property Association. It manages land. So you have a, a wing which is the community asset authority by the tribal. So that's where I come from as a leader who goes out. It's like your simple figure out there who represents the community on aspect of all issues which affect the community. But in the Communal Property Association, when they hold these meetings, uh, you have different opinions. So they do an analysis. Some of the analysis need science, some need uh, business acumens, uh, 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 like your AWS who comes in to us and say, this is how you can be able to use the model in order to generate. So it's for us to take those decisions and say, uh, do we go back to the community? And uh, when we go back, we explain to them, we want to do... Uh, uh, conservation, but 70% of our core business will be hunting because it generates this much versus photographic uh, 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 tourism. So a decision which was taken is that when we do the comparison in terms of the revenue generation is that uh, hunting generates more than the photographic uh, tourism. Approximately 20 times more. Yeah, yeah. then uh, we that's where we took a decision to say we need to look at people who can support, especially the hunters who can support this project in terms of numbers. We have approximately 30 beds. So if we can have 30 hunters in a period from March to uh, September, October, which is the hunting period, then uh, we can sustain the business because uh, the revenue, revenue generated will be plowed back in unemployment because at the moment I think we are employing almost 47 and the government is giving us a program where you have 30 uh, odd people who are doing your monitoring and patrols to look at all the snares. So you have 17 which you directly uh, employ from the community. Our vision is to expand to at least 100 because we need more land to expand to 100 so that the 100 in terms of African uh, uh, population, you you are impacting on more than 300 people to 400 people because usually one family or one family member, if he works, especially in the area, you have to support the other family members. Mm-hmm. That's the model of Africa. It's not the same as other countries whereby 
is everybody for himself. If I work in my family, I have to do even the extended family and share with the other family. So the range of uh, what we we did even in the past is to give at the same time community a land. We give them some hectares to say, as you are busy doing this photographic and hunting, utilize this land for agriculture and other businesses. Because remember, we I told you that they are scattered, they were scattered before by the apartheid. Now they are coming back. We we say we are looking at the future, that we don't have to have a revolt, because people will come and say you are utilizing this land for certain purposes, while we don't get anything. So we gave them one thousand hectares to utilize it, and eight thousand for set resettlement. So we are trying to do land allocation in terms of the needs of the community in order to minimize all the risk of uh, revolts and stuff. Doctor, how long have you been monitoring the situation there and doing a count of the population of wildlife? So this this particular project just got off the ground uh, back in December. So this is a brand new project. Uh, we have deployed camera traps. Um, on, we have about 90 cameras uh, deployed on the, uh, on the site, on the reserve. Uh, those will be uh, that we're going to pull those out uh, the data off of those very soon uh, and I'm going to be heading over in March to to finish the data collection uh, for this phase so it's it's a it's a periodic monitoring it's not a one-shot thing um, provided that we secure sufficient funding then in June we're going to go back we're going to continue the camera trapping and we'll start the second phase which is uh, putting uh, radio uh, satellite tracking collars on a group of a subgroup of the leopards uh, to establish how they're using the reserve. Uh, with the long term, well, medium term goal, say next year or two, to reintroduce lions to the reserve and then monitor how the leopards respond to that lion reintroduction. Francis, I would like to say uh, address this issue of consumptive, non-consumptive, uh, because I, from a from a broader perspective, I have uh, despite. Despite my useful, I'm, I'm sorry. Despite my youthful voice, uh, I, I I have been in conservation and wildlife research for um, for over 20 years, almost 30 years, and uh, I, I think sometimes it is a false dichotomy when people say we can have consumptive use, we can have hunting, or we can have um, non-consumptive use, or we can have bird watching. Uh, full disclosure: I'm a hunter. Okay, I'm also a bird watcher. I'm an avid bird watcher, and I travel around and pay really good money to see birds. Um, and and I wouldn't trade either of those experiences. And so I think the people who try to pitch it as hunting, it, there can either be hunting or there can be uh, bird watching or non-consumptive ecotourism versus consumptive ecotourism. I think they're just trying to be divisive. I agree because. In my opinion, if you're willing, if if you're willing to say and you believe that I am for wildlife conservation, then there's a place at the table. We may disagree on some things beyond that, and mm-hmm. that's fine because uh, uh, civil people can disagree. But if we start from the place of wildlife conservation, if we start from the place that we want to continue uh, having good, robust wildlife populations and increase those populations, then that's starting from a place of agreement, and and that's where you have to start from. And so that's. That's that's how I move forward. I, I don't I don't advocate for hunting necessarily. I don't advocate against hunting. Uh, I have my personal views, and then I do the science because m- at the end of the day, my interest is in wildlife conservation. One of the things that concerns me of wildlife conservation in 
uh, anywhere, but particularly in Africa, is that African population is growing. They have a high fertility rate. And animal populations decrease, wild animal population decrease, not so much because they're being hunted to death or or a lot of stuff. It's simply that as it's a result of human expansion, encroachment into their territory and converting their habitat into farmland and all the conflicts that therefore ensue. And so my concern, I know South Africa has one of the lowest fertility rates in Africa. I think it's just above replacement rate. It's around 2.2 or 2.3 or something like that. Replacement rate is 2.1. But my concern is, is I don't know if in, you're monitoring that fer- fertility rate in your, in the community that we're talking about here or just general in Africa. Yes, go ahead. Francis, if I can come in there, um, we have, uh, uh, I, I don't want to use her name because I didn't ask her to, but there's a lady that we know, Prince Benjamin knows her as well, uh, who is trying to do her doctoral at the moment, specifically on that, to ascertain the socioeconomic impact on the community from the different forms of ecotourism. So that, I think, would be a worthwhile research project. You know, if only we could get a university that would offer a doctoral in, in that regard. Because she, I know for a fact she has submitted it to one or two South African universities which have not approved it yet. Mm-hmm. But perhaps we can address those gaps in our knowledge, as with the gaps in our knowledge when it comes to leopard density and population, doing the same thing. And that is what we're trying to promote here, is do the science, do the research, empower people, give them the opportunity to do that so that we can answer that question. Because right now I don't think we know. What frustrates you the most? <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> frequently it's dealing with me <laughs> I think the the biggest frustration for me and I'm is that you know as an industry it appears from my perspective and it's again my personal opinion that we've been playing defense I've been in this industry for 30 years and I have perceived the industry and the industry leaders to play defensively. Uh, You know, it's rather similar to the precautionary principle in science, where they try and err on the safe side, rather not on, they they don't take any risk. There's no serious risk appetite here, or any risk appetite for that matter. And I believe we should be more proactive and start playing uh, offensively. Uh, I like to explain it to people like a football match. At the football match. That's soccer for Americans. <laughs> well, all right. Let's talk about rugby then. You know, it's like it's like gridiron, but it's for men. You know, <laughs> you know, we don't wear any PPE or you know body armor or things like that. This is played by real men. You guys are real men. Yes. <laughs> Agree. So back to the point. What I try and uh, get to is that there are spectators and there are participants and there are referees, and typically the spectators know best but they can't score a try. So what we're trying to do is to score tries here. We need to change our perspective and our narrative and our strategy and be offensive when it comes to this battle that has been raging in the biodiversity sphere, conservation issue or industry. Because we have, say, 20% of the global population in favor of uh, consumptive utilization. Another 20% is 
uh, non-consumptive and animal rightists, which I think is uh, just irrational and emotionally driven people. You can't have a conversation with them. They're not open-minded. And then you have 60% of the global population that's undecided but are rational. But they they don't know if they're in favor of consumptive or non-consumptive. So we need an offensive strategy, a proactive approach to educate and inform that undecided 60% because they they, they have the power through social media to inform policy and to dictate trade like we've seen happen at COP18 just now. But they don't have the information. They don't know what they don't know. So as an industry, we need to educate them. But we can't do it if we're playing offense, uh, defense all the time. We need to come out with a working solution, innovative, creative solutions to old problems. We need to build bridges like my uh, friend uh, Dr. Swatner just explained. We need to uh, find a middle way or a seat at the table for everybody. We need to present ourselves in such a way that we are acceptable to the global community. And that we cannot do if we are playing offensive and if we are playing into the hands of the animal rights groups by providing them with a large tick to beat us with. You you know, so that is my frustration. And then obviously we just need, uh, you know, there's project-specific frustrations and then there's the industry-related frustrations. But yeah, I think that was probably the thing that frustrated me most is that, that attitude and approach of playing defensively because it hasn't worked in 30 years because every year we lose the right to trade in another species and losing that right to trade impacts the families on the ground that Prince Benjamin can explain to you much more in detail than I can but I've seen children with quasi orcor syndrome thousands and thousands and thousands of them so the, the, the pro-utilization approach addresses that we provide them with a source of protein we provide them with employment we create employment we, we create education. We, we address the issues, and that's a proactive approach. But we need to document it, we need to research it, and we need to publish it, peer-reviewed publications. And then we need to cast that narrative and show it to the world because we are not doing a good job at it. Anthropomorph- anthropomorphism uh, is ruling the world at the moment. Uh, nature deficit disorder, if I can, it's not an official term, but it's being used a lot these days. We're sitting with a global c- community that has been urbanized. There's a total disconnect. They, d- have not, they have no idea of what the impact and the realities are on grassroots level. They don't. Yet they take an emotional knee-jerk decision. They donate funds to an animal rights organization, which puts a trigger out there that involves decisions and livelihoods of people in rural Africa. I don't think that's acceptable. We need to address that and remedy that. Very good. Any final words that you have, Prince Benjamin, uh, regarding uh, to that you would, a message that you would send to Americans or Europeans or Australians you know, who are the audience of this podcast? What would you want to say to them? The best that they could do is to support the project. But supporting that project is to make sure that they come and hunt in Africa, especially in our project. And uh, one more thing about the frustration which I have to add is the CITES conference is a regulative environment, which to me stifles uh, trade. In terms of the WTO's principles, 
uh, one of the things, uh, the principles there is to promote trade. And the uh, CITES falls under that WTO principles. So from the community point of view, I would like them to listen to communities on the ground and be able to uh, relax this uh, relaxation, I mean, these uh, uh, laws which stifle uh, trade. I mean, the first example which I was in CITES in Geneva, they were talking about the, 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 the giraffe, you know, to be listed in Appendix 1, I can't remember, mm -hmm. 2 or 2. So <laughs> we've got a lot of giraffes there. So once you do that, you say we need to have a CITES permit. So you are gradually uh, uh, regulating trade in a manner that uh, stifles uh, the livelihoods of our community. So that is the first frustration which from my community we are looking at. And I've realized that not many communities are represented in that uh, decision-making uh, bodies. So we will want uh, a voice there rather than governments talk about the on behalf of the community, which some of them doesn't put the aspiration of the communities on the ground. So for me, it's all about uh, uh, dealing with those tri uh, triple challenges, which is your poverty, which I see every day. And uh, because uh, one hunter, uh, to be honest, when it comes to our community, we always take that meat which is left and give it to the communities, especially kids. We don't sell. Uh, from our model, we always take the, the meat and give it to crashes around the area uh, to teach them about the wild meat, I mean the wild industry, and also to deal with the issues of uh, uh, food security. Now, a lot of Americans might be listening to this who are not hunters. They might say, really, you guys eat the meat? Or do you eat giraffe? Yes. Do you eat hippopotamus? Yes. <laughs> Do you <laughs> eat elephant? <laughs> yes. We, we eat each and every time. There are people, you know, in my totem, I can't eat uh, uh, an elephant because it's my totem. But there are communities, especially when you hunt an elephant. Explain what a totem is. A totem is uh, my traditional uh, praise name. I mean, praise uh, each and every uh, community around uh, Africa, they have their praise. Uh, they, it's but like not your uh, whole community has the same totem. Yeah, not the whole community, but uh, if we say Valapia, we are talking about an elephant. It's our mm -hmm. species. Mm -hmm. We respect that species. It's the same as we go to India. When they see a cattle, uh, they bow. So for us, when we see an elephant, it's, our, it's in line with our totem. So we, we praise the elephant. But so snakes are good. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't eat snakes? You don't, don't eat snakes? Snake. No, we well, don't, don't eat, eat snakes. Snake. Oh, my yeah, God. Maybe in China. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's definitely some African communities that eat snakes. I've yeah, seen it. I've yeah, actually Yeah, there are those, snake. but in our community, you, they will even be surprised. We don't okay, eat. So I found finally one thing that, that you guys will not eat. It's snake. Snakes, dogs, like in China. Now we've got a corona. You see, we don't eat those. We don't want to eat those things which can cause diseases in our communities. We, we've got a staple kind of meat. In the wild also, I'm a, I'm a Christian who doesn't eat certain animals also. Mm. Uh, you call them your Zionist. I fall in that group because I don't eat pork also. You may eat pork, but I don't eat so 
So there are also certain, uh, like a rabbit I don't eat. I follow Deuteronomy 14 in terms of my beliefs. Mm. But, so, so there are communities around the area, there are different who can eat your elephant. Mm. Yeah, so. It's not going to waste. Yeah. Let me, right. Okay. Uh, last question. For most people that are listening to this are probably leaning more toward photographic safaris than hunting safaris, just because that's the demographics of the planet, and it's this is not a hunting specific podcast. So, whether they want to go, whatever safari they are thinking about, consumptive or not, how can they actually learn more about where to sign up, where to go? Uh, prices, things like that. Is there a website that you can send uh, them to? Yes, definitely. Uh, yes, definitely, Francis. We have a, a website uh, www.africanwildlifeservices.co.za. I'll repeat that: www.africanwildlifeservices.co.za. And I'll translate that for Americans. That ZA means ZA. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, that's what you all call it. That. Hundred percent, I agree. <laughs> yeah, um, they can also phone me, uh, you know, or send text or WhatsApp messages. I have a, a number there. It's an American number for uh, now. They can use it. It's uh, plus one for the international dialing code two five four nine six four double eight zero eight. And I use WhatsApp and there's Facebook and Instagram, the social media, and they can inquire there, and we can definitely accommodate all forms of ecotourism. We welcome that, and we cater for them. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. appreciate it. Thank you very much, Francis. Thank, Thank you, sir. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.